0: This is an ABC News special. COVID-19, what you need to know. Here is ABC News correspondent Aaron Katursky. This is the day Georgia allowed some non-essential
1: businesses to reopen from their COVID closure. It was too soon for some who decided to stay closed, and it prompted criticism from the mayor of Atlanta who called it irresponsible.
2: To make an assumption... That we are out of the woods is not based on anything other than a desire to open up businesses. And what I believe is that there are some who are willing to sacrifice lives for the sake of the economy. And I, uh, that's unacceptable to me.
1: Fong Win, owner of Nails and More Salon in Lawrenceville, Georgia, decided he would open. And he's with us now. How's it going?
3: So far, so good. Um, you know, we just work by appointments only. and um, we just take one uh, appointment at a time, no walk-in, so there were no people waiting in the waiting area. So
1: you've had to operate differently than you did before.
3: Yes, we we operate completely different from before because uh, usually we take walk-in and appointments and we have like almost 30 people working here. But now because the number of employees uh, are not ready to be back to work yet, So, you know, we have to cut down on the number that we take in.
1: And are your employees wearing masks and gloves? How are they trying to protect themselves?
3: They all wear masks and uh, face shields.
1: Because you, by the very nature of your, your business, you're in close contact with your clients.
3: Yes, we are very close to the customer. So... We have to do as much as possible to protect ourselves and our customers as well.
1: Did you have any hesitation about reopening or were you ready as soon as the governor said it was okay?
3: I have a hesitation on reopening because, you know, we have children, like two young children, and my parents live with us. So, you know, we were worried about that. However, um, seeing we have a lot of bills to pay, the rent to pay, food for family.
1: I'm sure your customers were glad to see you.
3: Oh, yeah. Um, we have customers that um, call us to, to, to let us know that the govern, uh, the governor's open back um, economy, you know, for nail salon, hair salon mm-hmm. and stuff. So they, they try to contact us and try to book an appointment with us before. We knew about,
1: you know, the reopening. Oh, wow. So they were waiting. They really wanted to come in. Yeah, they were waiting. Fong Nguyen will let you get back to those customers who've been waiting weeks for their pedicures and manicures. Oklahoma and Texas, by the way, are taking similar steps. And other states and some big companies, including automakers, look to get back to work in the next week. Some, though, won't feel comfortable venturing out for a while. A new ABC News Ipsos poll showed three-fourths of Americans were okay with taking it slow. A full 80% said even if restrictions were lifted tomorrow, they would likely avoid places with a crowd. The key for many is going to be a treatment or a vaccine. And on that front, there has been something of a setback. Dr. Matt Hines joins us now from Tucson Medical Center in Arizona. The anti-malaria drug touted as a possible treatment may have no effect on coronavirus patients. That's the word anyway from New York, which studied hydroxychloroquine, and the FDA said it may be too risky to give to patients.
4: We're all kind of in medical school together. You know, you, me, my patients. I've literally admitted a patient to the hospital in the middle of a 10 or 12-hour shift you know they get a text alert or some news thing and they ask me about something that I haven't yet had time to read up on because I'm in the middle of my shift so it's very we're, we're sort of grasping at things and therefore people are susceptible I think to being influenced into doing things that out of desperation and out of fear Um, I know you've heard uh, of the gentleman here in Arizona that actually ingested a lethal, a toxic dose of chloroquine. And specifically to chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine, which are basically chemical cousins, a study just came out, actually was just released today, that severely ill COVID-19 patients in Brazil, those who took or who were given, the, the half of the group that was given the higher dose of chloroquine had serious side effects and died much faster than the, than the group that had a lower dose. So that's, that's very concerning. And more than just unproven, I would say that some of these chemicals, some of these drugs that are being bandied about, they could have deleterious effects.
1: I wanted to talk about your state for a minute. You're from Arizona. And Dr. Hines, you're not expecting a peak there for what, another couple of weeks?
4: That's right. I I don't, you know, Arizona overall with COVID-19 is um, significantly behind other areas that have been more affected. Of course, New York, uh, the West Coast um, were hit earliest and to this point most severely. We are relatively far removed from the coast and also have a very different population makeup and density. So that I think is having an effect
1: but you also do have a particular population that's being disproportionately affected and that's native americans
4: that is true that is true something we're seeing i think the the most dramatically we're seeing that in the navajo nation which is up in, uh, up to the northern part of arizona they're having some tremendous difficulties with controlling the uh, the disease and um, one of the recent one of the recent reviews i saw actually reflects uh, nearly a tenfold mortality rate compared to you know the state of Arizona surrounding the nation which is uh, which is just heartbreaking and and not clear not exactly clear why i mean there's some There's some reasons, obviously, with regard to difficulty getting, having running water or access to clean running water and some various other issues like comorbidities or other diseases like heart disease, obesity, diabetes, especially that uh, disproportionately affect Native populations, including in the Navajo Nation. But I don't know if those are sufficient to explain such a disparity.
1: Hmm. Dr. Matt Hines at Tucson Medical Center. Coronavirus has been linked to increasing rates of kidney failure, and that has led to a possible shortage of dialysis equipment as doctors try to balance the use of dialysis machines for coronavirus patients with the needs of the half million Americans who have kidney disease. Dr. Ishida Talwani joins us now from the University of Alabama at Birmingham, where she's a professor in nephrology. We've seen significant kidney complications from coronavirus so far.
5: So we, as well as the rest of the country, have seen that these patients develop a high incidence of acute kidney injury or damage to the kidneys, higher than most critically ill patients would normally get. And out of those patients, about 30 to 50 percent are going to require dialysis.
1: Do we know why this is happening?
5: So we don't know 100 percent, but if you look at autopsy specimens of these patients from China, they have what's called the most common cause of acute kidney injury in the critical air setting is ATN or acute tubular necrosis. And that's where the Kidneys, because they don't get the blood supply they need from basically being critically ill, low blood pressure, inflammation, they basically, the tubules in the kidney break down. There's also been reports of actually detection of the virus in the kidneys itself. So there may be a direct toxicity that we don't know of yet. So there may be two mechanisms or several mechanisms of why we see this month kidney failure in these patients.
1: And to make matters worse, we've heard now of shortages of dialysis machines since so many patients are requiring one.
5: That's correct. Essentially, what's happening is that the demand is more than the capacity of many of these hospitals. So hospitals are not having enough dialysis machines to treat these patients, not enough solutions. The dialysis solutions required to treat these patients, and even staffing is an issue Because if these specialized nurses, like dialysis nurses, get ill, there's not somebody else who can provide the therapy. So there can be shortages on all aspects of the therapy that have been unheard of before.
1: What's the alternative then?
5: So there's different forms of dialysis you can provide. So the most common type of dialysis provided for these patients who are critically ill is one that runs 24 hours a day. And that's called continuous renal replacement therapy, renal meaning kidney. And so what some individuals have done or institutions where they can't have enough or don't have enough machines, they will do, instead of 24 hours a day of therapy, maybe what's called shift therapy, doing 10, 12 hours, or sometimes using regular dialysis machines for long extended amount of time to try to help these patients. Other institutions and places like in New York who don't even have these regular type of dialysis machines or these 24-hour machines have even resorted to doing acute peritoneal dialysis, where a catheter is inserted into the abdomen, and a fluid, basically an electrolyte solution, is placed in the belly, and exchange of toxins and fluids occurs through that catheter in the belly. So there's different modifications that all over the United States they've made to accommodate for the lack of machines. Luckily, many of these patients who do survive through their ICU studying get off the ventilator, and who've had normal kidney function to begin with, do come off dialysis. So this is not something that we see as a permanent thing.
1: We'll take any positive outcome, Dr. Ashida Talwani at UAB. And coming up, some practical help for the millions who have
0: lost or who are in danger of losing health care insurance. This ABC News special continues after this. listening to an ABC News special, COVID-19, what you need to know. Here is ABC News correspondent Amy Robach.
6: And with me as always is ABC chief medical correspondent, Dr. Jen Ashton. And Dr. Jen, so much of this pandemic has been based on the medical history lessons that we've learned in other pandemics. So what do we know about the way these respiratory viruses have spread around the world in the past? Well, Amy, I think it's so important as we're learning
7: every day with this pandemic to remember the lessons we learned in the past. So as you said, in some ways we've been here before. So starting with the Spanish flu, of course, 1918, it's thought to have originated in China. And it's also thought to have been responsible for 50 million deaths worldwide. Then we saw the Asian flu in 1957, also thought to be originated in China, killing about 2 million people across the world. Then the Hong Kong flu, also starting in China 1968, approximately uh, responsible for 2 million deaths worldwide. And then swine flu, most of us remember that one. It's an H1N1 influenza from 2009, starting either in Mexico or China and responsible for killing just over half a million people. All of these respiratory pandemics
6: came in waves. So that is an important lesson in medicine, right? So with this COVID-19 pandemic, what are some of the theories that disease trackers are looking into right now?
7: Well, this is, remember, this is what these public health officials, epidemiologists, disease trackers do. So here are some of the theories that they're looking at. Number one, will this virus, this coronavirus, change or show seasonality? Will it go down somewhat in the summer, um, or how will the weather affect it? And how will our behavior being outdoors more affect it? Also, will it return in fall and winter? And we have to remember. Um, Amy, this virus is worldwide. So while we're in our summer up here in North America, the southern hemisphere is experiencing their winter. So we'll have to look at those things moving forward.
6: Right. And since so much is new with this virus, what are the unknowns at this time?
7: Well, you know, we talk about it every day. Um, It's just as important to say what we don't know as it is to say what we do know. And when you talk about what we still don't know about COVID-19 and this new strain of coronavirus, in terms of how this pandemic will play out, how, why, when, and where a wave or multiple waves will occur, if they will occur. And ultimately, even though people don't like to think about this, how many deaths will this cause worldwide? Remember, it's not just about what happens in the United States that matters. It really matters what happens in other parts of the world because that has a direct effect on us here as well. Yeah,
6: we are all connected. We've certainly learned that. Dr. Jen Ashton, you'll be with us later in the show. Thank you. In the meantime, we turn now to ABC's Rachel Scott, who's in D.C. with the latest headlines for us.
2: Hey, Amy, great to be with you on this Friday. Let's get to some of the developments we are watching at this hour. Americans overwhelmingly favor those widespread stay at home restrictions to contain coronavirus. That's according to a new ABC News Ipsos poll. 86% saying that social distancing and stay at home policies are the responsible way to go, with 72% agreeing that moving too quickly is a greater threat. Than moving too slowly. This, as that $484 billion relief plan to help small businesses and first responders received huge support in the House. Many lawmakers, per CDC guidelines, wearing masks and some also wearing gloves, returning to the Capitol to pass that major measure, the fourth so far. And word that nursing home deaths from COVID-19 nationwide have crossed the 10,000 mark. ABC News examining records kept by more than 28 states, governors' offices, and departments of health providing that data and locations keeping those records. And the rising virus toll on the Navajo Nation, reporting 78 new cases just yesterday with 52 deaths among more than 1,300 cases. Officials adding that although case numbers are dropping, the Navajo Nation has not yet reached its peak.
6: Amy? Amy? Thank you so much, Rachel. Well, some lawmakers are concerned there is not enough data highlighting how people of color and low income communities could be disproportionately harmed by this coronavirus pandemic and now calling on the federal government to change how they are collecting data. And joining us now from the nation's capital to tell us more about this is Representative Ayanna Presley of Massachusetts. Congresswoman, thanks for being with us. And it's important to know pretty early on in this pandemic, you pushed the CDC on the need to collect racial data in real time and then to report it publicly. Why was that?
8: Well, because history has already shown and proved that any crisis, certainly a public health crisis, will be disproportionately borne by communities of color who are living with the comorbidities of structural racism. Um, We saw that with H1N1, um, African-Americans represented a higher uh, proportion of hospitalizations and also fatalities. And unfortunately, because of the criminal negligence of science denials and a sluggish response of the Trump administration, we are behind, which is the last Place that you want to be in when um, confronting a, a pandemic. And so um, early on began banging the drum for the collection of racial data for it to be disaggregated, publicly reported. Um, one, so that we could determine if there was an equitable public health response when it comes to access to testing and to treatment, but also so that we can save lives. This is not data mining for the sake of data mining. It's so that we can get ahead of this pandemic and do things like contract tracing, see where trends are emerging, where there are hot spots so that we can um, uh, send out mobile units um, so that we can do all the necessary mitigation strategies. And so um, I'm encouraged um, that uh, in uh, CARES 2, the language that we pushed for, that race data collection is now standardized, federally mandated across the board, married with resources. That's the important thing. So that states and cities, $1 billion, have the resources to do the collection of this race data. We were already collecting age and gender. That early data showed us that this um, pandemic was being disproportionately borne by men. Um, and of course, anecdotally, what we see in the Massachusetts 7th and throughout this country is that communities of color and our disability community are being hardest hit.
6: Yeah, And the bill that you helped to introduce with other lawmakers, tell us about its status right now and what you're hoping.
8: Well, again, that language was included um, in the uh, package that we voted on yesterday. And so what happened is that there were some 30 states that were already collecting some semblance of data. There were three states that were collecting racial data. And that's why people really started sounding the alarm when they saw what was happening in Louisiana, when they saw what was happening in Michigan, when they saw what was happening in Massachusetts. Now that will be standardized across the board. And the important thing is not only is that uh, required, Uh, That that collection of race data is being disaggregated and publicly reported, but it is married with the resources so that we can get ahead of this and do things like contract tracing, mobile testing, um, expanding testing uh, sites. all the things that are necessary, the resources. What we want is for the resources to follow where those communities are hardest hit. That was also something that we voted on yesterday, so that when we talk about equipment and PPE, that instead of that algorithm uh, being based upon population, now will be based on rate of infection.
6: And based on real data that you've pushed to collect. Yesterday, the House also passed the latest relief package. What do you think was missing? What does Congress need to do next?
8: Well, you know, I'm on the phone with um, families and small business owners every day with healthcare workers, frontline workers, from our social workers to our essential workers, grocery store clerks, uh, to our nurses and our doctors. And so we need more PPE. Uh, we need more testing. We need greater investment in our community health centers. Um, we need to not exclude our immigrant uh, communities uh, from relief. We need rent and mortgage cancellation. The rent is due in seven days. And so in the midst of people wondering about if they'll even be alive, if they'll weather this pandemic, they're also worried about paying the rent and that's unacceptable. We need student debt cancellation. We need dedicated funding for our minority small businesses. We need a people's bailout. We need a bill that puts the people first. Um, we need a bill that supports those small businesses that are just too small to fail. Beauty salons, barbershops, bodegas, restaurants. So there's a lot more that we that we need to um, that we need to do and that's what I'm fighting for. I know that so many people
6: out there, so many families appreciate your advocacy on their behalf. Congresswoman Ayana Presley, thank you for being with us today. Thank you. And there's much more ahead today on What You Need to Know. Dr. Jen Ashton joining us with answers to your coronavirus questions. Plus, with so many people losing their jobs now, what about your health insurance? Our next guest with some options for keeping your coverage and keeping costs under control. We'll be right back.
0: This ABC News special, COVID-19, What You Need to Know, continues after this. listening to an ABC News special, COVID-19, what you need to know. Once again, here is ABC News correspondent Amy Robach.
6: Well, time now for some answers to your many questions about the coronavirus from our Dr. Jen Ashen. And Dr. Jen joins us once again. So I'll get to the first one. If we had symptoms but didn't get tested, how do we know when we can go back to work or socialize?
7: That is such a difficult question to answer, Amy, and we only have the CDC guidelines at this point to help guide that reentry or return to work. So basically two categories as per the CDC recommendations. One is people who have had a test. So if you had the nasal swab, which is a PCR test that said you had coronavirus, you have two options. It's either three days without fever and seven days since symptoms began, or in theory, you could get another test that shows you are negative. But this is logistically problematic because testing access was so difficult for so many people to begin with that it's hard now to use a negative nasal swab as a return to work criteria. But I hope that in the future, we may start to see that.
6: Okay. And our next question, do people who've had a more severe case of COVID-19 develop more or stronger antibodies, or do they have weaker antibodies?
7: Well, we don't know. So, when you talk about antibodies, remember that's the immune response to being exposed or infected with a virus. And here are two important terms: affinity of those antibodies and tighter level. So, tighter level is basically how many do you have, and affinity is how well do they work to block that virus in the future. And we don't know right now whether you can have a high level but low affinity, or A high affinity, but a low level. So right now, that's where a lot of the research is. So just saying you have the antibodies, unfortunately,
6: doesn't tell us how protected we are in the future. Okay. And speaking of people who have antibodies, we've been talking a lot about plasma donations to help people who are critically ill. Can the plasma of a recovered COVID-19 patient be given to someone who never had the virus? Basically, could the recovered person's antibodies protect this person from getting infected? Well, that's
7: basically kind of the premise between developing a vaccine as prevention, is showing a little bit of that infection to a person who's healthy so that our body can acquire its defense mechanisms to protect us in the future. Research is ongoing with convalescent plasma, both as a treatment for someone who is critically ill or severely ill with COVID-19, and as a prevention. And some of that prevention may be able to be used in people regardless of their blood type. So really exciting, but basically two potential uses for convalescent plasma, prevention and treatment.
6: Many non-essential businesses are reopening in the state of Georgia. So this next question is an interesting one for people who live there. When gyms open, should people be wearing masks? Well, the CDC is recommending
7: that most people in the general public wear some kind of face covering to help protect others. So gyms or environments like that, hair salons, really no different. But certainly if you're talking about a fitness facility reopening, those can be hot spots because of all the contact surfaces. So Hand hygiene,
6: really, really important, as well as
7: covering your face for the protection of others.
6: Okay, Dr. Jen, we appreciate it. Thank you. And you can submit questions to Dr. Jen on her Instagram at Dr. J Ashton. Well, it is tough enough to lose a job due to the pandemic. And for many, that also means the loss of vital health insurance. But there are options to help keep coverage costs under control. Consumer Reports has just published information about what you can do. So joining me now, Consumer Reports investigative reporter Lisa Gill. We know healthcare care costs are already high. If you're now out of a job and there's no money to pay for the coverage,
9: can the health care system meet this current challenge you know this pandemic really exposed some of the weaknesses of this healthcare system but there are some things that you can do and you know the first thing you want to do if you have a complicated medical situation maybe you're getting a cancer treatment or other long-term treatment if your employer offers cobra it's essentially an extension of your existing coverage you have that option Uh, you have 60 days to sign up you're going to pay for your full amount of your health care, so it could be expensive, but it's something to consider. All right. The next possibility is to go look at healthcare.gov. It's a really useful tool for really everybody. And there's some screener questions in the beginning, and it's going to determine how much you're making per month. So if you've just lost your job and the amount is zero, you'll put that amount in. It'll also determine where you live and what the laws are in your state. What's really surprising is about 37 states have expanded their Medicaid coverage to cover people just like what's happened now with people that have lost their jobs and who have not necessarily you know, poverty level, but they you could make up to $1,400 a month or even $3,000 a month for a family and qualify for your state Medicaid plan. The other thing is if you, if you make a little more than that, you may be able to qualify for subsidies under the Affordable Health Care Act, ACA plans uh, that are government like federal government subsidized that run through your state, and those plans, the average price usually is around eighty, eighty-seven dollars a month for people that get a subsidy. So there's a, there's a really good options there. But healthcare.gov is truly your place to start.
6: What about those people out there who've been hit with
9: surprise medical bills? What can they do? If you start to receive medical bills from your doctor or a hospital don't actually and you still have health insurance don't actually pay it at first you want to wait until your insurance company shows you their explanation of benefits about how much they're going to cover if they're not going to cover as much and you're you're sort of surprised by the amount the first thing you'll, you'll want to do is call the insurance company and ask them if they've made a, a coverage mistake. Uh, believe it or not, there are quite a few mistakes and it's worth asking. If they say, no, sorry, I know this sounds crazy, but you know, you're know you really your best advocate. Your, your next question is, will you cover this at the in-network rate anyway? Mm-hmm. And we have heard consumers tell us that that is a possibility. Sometimes insurance companies just simply change their mind. Now, if that doesn't happen, now you really need to go on the offensive and you're now you're going to start making more phone calls to both the doctor's office that may have billed you or the health system or the hospital system. And now you're going to ask, can you guys bill me at the in-network rate instead of the out-of-network rate? Then you're going to ask them, would you give me a discount if I paid the amount entirely in full up front, like a substantial discount, 20%, 30%. Uh, you can also ask if they have any financial services at the hospital or, or the health system. A lot of times they can offer payment plans. They may even offer additional financial help, but what we've learned is they may not offer it to you up front. You actually have to ask. And then and then with the insurance company, you know, you, you want to fil- file an appeal. An appeal can take about 60 days, but you're going to ask them, if they say no up front, ask them uh, to go, go through the appeals process and ask if they'll review, review all of your bills and pay that in-network rate anyway. So much helpful
6: information for us, Lisa Gill Consu- of Consumer Reports. Thank you so much. We appreciate your time today. Thank you. And we have much more ahead here on what you need to know. The popular pastor who personally faced coronavirus will now have some thoughts about the big picture on this Faith Friday. And then we're winging it with the Denver pilot delivering much needed protective gear to healthcare workers in remote areas. One of the extraordinary essential workers sharing his story with us this week. Stay with us.
0: This ABC News special continues after this. are listening to an ABC News special, COVID-19, what you need to know. Once again, here is ABC News correspondent Amy Robach.
6: We are back with another Extraordinary Essential, our series highlighting the contributions by the formidable forces on the ground, keeping things running through this pandemic. This time, though, it's in the sky, the Denver pilot pivoting to where he's needed
10: most. Hi, my name is Ralph Forsythe. I'm a private pilot volunteer for Angel Flight West, which is an all-volunteer pilot organization which typically moves medical patients around the country. With the current pandemic that's going on, these aircraft and pilots have been pressed into carrying items like personal protective equipment out to rural communities. Thank you for the masks. I just landed in Rifle, Colorado and delivered a box of masks to Grand River Health. The flight to Rifle was my first cargo flight for pandemic relief supplies and several other pilots in Colorado have been moving supplies to rural communities throughout this as well. Aviation also provides a really safe way to move these supplies around the country. We're socially isolated in the air. There's nobody else in the cockpit here with me. And uh, it's a really a great way to get this equipment where it's needed. I'm being safe wearing a mask, of course, like everybody else, Uh, but it's important to me that I can use this skill and this capability to give back to the community. This is a unprecedented situation that we're in and we all need to help. This is a great way that general aviation and pilots can all do something to give back and, and keep our community safe and get us through this faster.
6: Our thanks to Ralph Forsyth of Angel Wings West for his hard work. And it is Faith Friday here at ABC. And as most of the nation goes on over a month of virtual lockdown, and we know a little motivation, well, it can go a very long way. So here to help lift our spirits as we head into this weekend, lead pastor of Hillsong, New York City, Carl Lentz. Welcome, Pastor Lentz. And we know you tested positive for COVID 19 last month. And despite being sick, you continued to preach. Why?
11: Well, I preached uh, in isolation. That needs to be said. It was just me and another sick camera operator. (laughs) Um, But, yeah, I just felt like, you know, our church is dealing with the sickness. So I figured it made sense to just kind of try to preach through it and uh, give some hope where I could. And, yeah, we we somehow made it through.
6: What has it been like
11: to preach from afar? It's been really different. I think um, when you preach to thousands, um, you're always taught to Speak to the thousands, but find the one. And it's kind of reversed now where we're speaking to the one to reach thousands. So it's definitely a different mode, but it's, it's the same thing. It's the same message, just, just a different way to do it. And uh, we're grateful to be able to have technology to reach a lot of people.
6: You know, we're going into now another month of this and people are feeling very exhausted, a lot of anxiety, and some people might feel some despair and fear. How do you boost resilience in these challenging times?
11: Well, I think, firstly, you just thank God for teachers. So any parents that are dealing with homeschooling, like me and my wife, every day, we just thank God that there is a brighter day coming where we can get our kids out of the house. <laughs> but, uh, Amen. I think, I think we're all there. I think it's okay to feel a little bit, you know, just, just out of balance right now. And I think it's, it's when you lean on your community and your friends and your, and your relationships that bring life to you. But we're going to get through it. You know, we, we can't make permanent decisions in temporary valleys. That's a huge deal right now. And we're just trying to remind people that God is still good in the middle of this. And um, we didn't ask for this crisis, but we are absolutely going to make um, the absolute best out of it. And hopefully we'll, we'll come out of this better than we started it.
6: What is your message as we head into the weekend for everyone who is listening to you right now?
11: The times are going to change. And, and hopefully the goal is that um, we can find out some of the things you know, in us that maybe we're lacking that we didn't know about before the pandemic and have God work in us. So maybe the next time we're in a crisis, you know, we're, we're even more ready. We're even more faith filled. And that's our goal right now. We've seen, you know, that story you just had on the pilots and there's, there's good news out there. If you want to look for it, people who are not running from this, but they're actually trying to be a light in the middle of what is a lot of darkness, especially in our city. So I think that's our message, is that do everything you can to, to be kind to somebody else, to lift somebody else's head, to be encouraging, um, because we need it right now.
6: Yeah. Pastor, what have you learned about yourself?
11: Uh, I've learned that our house is pretty small. My kids are pretty <laughs> loud and my dogs eat a lot of food. And I've also learned that I really love people, maybe even more than I realize, because you, you take for granted so much when you have so much access to it. And then when you lose some of that freedom, you really start to feel what you love and what you don't want to be without. And so for me, it's put a a, a renewed value on relationships and not taking things for granted. You know, we have lost some friends in this crisis. Uh, Our church is filled with people that are dealing with the loss of loved ones or somebody who's sick. And it just just reminds you to not take a day for granted. If you love somebody, tell them. If you get a chance to hug them, uh, maybe not hug maybe virtually hug right now <laughs> do that if somebody has been a blessing to you let them know about it because this life it, it's a it's a vapor and we need to do everything we can to, to maximize it at all times i've learned that i need to be even more aware uh, about how precious these days are
10: yep.
6: oh, i got chills when you said that i love that pastor carl lintz thank you continued good health to you and your family we appreciate that and the helping hands gone viral when we come back we're going to meet the nursing assistant on a mission
0: This ABC News special continues after this. You're listening to an ABC News special, COVID-19, What You Need to Know. Once again, here is ABC News correspondent Amy Robach.
6: Our next guest captured our attention with her recent uplifting post on Instagram, sharing messages on her gloves from inside the UCI Medical Center. Well, joining us now is nursing assistant Lupe Santos. So Lupe, tell us about the message you wrote on your gloves and why you posted it.
12: The message I wanted to thank, it's a positive message. I wanted to thank everyone. Um, You know, our hospitals have been really nice lately for people staying home and not coming to the hospital if not needed, and helping us take care of the really sick, and keeping themselves healthy and us healthcare workers healthy. So I just wanted to thank everyone, the community, uh, the public. Uh, it's been amazing. All the donations have been been heartwarming. Um, everything going on, it's just amazing. Um, you know, considering the pandemic going on, um, it's been negativity. So I just wanted to bring up a positive message. Well,
6: you're thanking them and and we're finding every way we can think of to thank you. You're a nursing assistant there on the front lines doing important life-saving work at UCI Medical Center. Uh, I know you also are a mother. How are you balancing the two?
12: Um, Well, it's a little bit difficult now that uh, I have to be a teacher, an entertainer, (laughs) everything, but it's, Overall, it's good. You know, more time with my kids, family. Um, you know, it's I can't kiss them or hug them for now, but they understand. And, you know, together we're going to get over this. And I know that
6: you are someone who says everyone's a hero right now, which is such a communal way to look at things, and that everyone staying at home is doing their part. What's your message to everyone at home right now?
12: I know these are difficult, trying times, but... By sacrificing a few months of quarantine and following guidelines, you guys are saving a lifetime for humanity. And you guys are the true heroes. And I just wanted to thank everyone, public, community, for doing their part.
6: Well, more evidence. We didn't need any that you are a hero indeed. Lupe Santos, thank you so much. Stay safe and thank Thank you you again for your service.
12: You too. Thank you for having me.
6: We're going to turn now to Dr. Jen Ashton for her final thoughts today. Jen?
7: Amy, it's all about resilience today. Um, It reminded me of this amazing book by Judith Rodin called The Resilience Dividend, How to Use Crisis to Come Out Stronger on the Other End. She says never let a good crisis go to waste. And when you talk about building resilience medically, physically, I want to encourage people, while we have this time right now, focus on the trifecta of health, which is getting good rest, being active and fit and eating well and and good nutrition. Those things will not only help us get through this today, but it will set you up for future resilience medically
6: and physically, and it is possible to come out stronger. I love that. Words of wisdom as we head into the weekend. Dr. Jen Ashton, thank you so much. And that's what you need to know for this week. I'm Amy Robach. Thanks for listening.
0: ABC news honored winner of four edward r murrow awards abc news america's number one news choice
12: hey i'm andy mitchell a new york times best-selling author and i'm sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer